good to be here uh, this morning on the first kind of Sunday of 2011. You know, it's, a lot of us always approach the, the new year with kind of mixed emotions. And, and I was spending some time reflecting on, you know, 2010 and, and, and what went right and what went wrong and, and 2011 and the things that I was hoping for. And, and so I was spending some time reading on the internet people's thoughts on, on the new year and the reflections on their own personal experience. I was just kind of glancing through and reading through a few folks' blogs and, and reading about what they were expressing um, about the last year, what they were hoping for in 2011. It was really interesting. I mean, I came across so many folks that I felt like had these deep aspirations of change for 2011. Like 2010 was kind of a mess. And maybe it's because the people that would tend to write things on the internet are, are probably, you know, more in touch with kind of saying, you know, this is the stuff I'm going to be done with and start over. They're more in touch with expressing their emotions. But either way, there was a lot of, of, of kind of a recurrence of expression of saying, you know what, 2010, I'm done with it, and 2011, I want to be really different. And as I was reading through some of these blogs and some of these writers' thoughts, I began to wonder how these people were going to go about moving towards that change. So if 2010 was a mess, how do I move towards 2011? And I came across this, this one guy's blog, and he was writing about how awful 2010 had been for him. He was expressing the fact that he had lost some significant things in his own personal life. And it seemed like that every time that he caught his breath, life would just come and kind of kick the wind out of him again. And it seemed that the 2010 was just sort of, you know, event after event after event that just sort of took the, the very joy of his life away. And as I read through some of these things, I started thinking, how, how are these people going to move towards change in 2011? So if 2010 is done and 2011 is going to be different, what are they declaring? Are they simple resolutions, you know, about my, my physical self or my emotional self? Or, or, or what are the, the ways that things are going to change? And so I grabbed a pen, and as I was reading through these, I started jotting down what people were saying. So this is how things are going to be different in, in 2011. And, and as you can imagine, that list, as I kind of compiled, it was really diverse, and it was, it was really personal to some of these kind of folks' uh, responses and some things that had to transpire for, for things to be really different. But there were some some really significant common threads that kind of jumped out off the page as I kind of looked down this little legal pad of, of things that were going to change in the lives of, of people in order to, to kind of get things done. And, and I really came with, with like three things that sort of jumped off that I thought were really common. Now they were worded really differently, but they were kind of common trends over these seven or eight people's kind of thoughts that I read that really kind of came off the page. And, and the first one was really that, that in 2011 I will be um, stronger. So in 2011, whether it was work-related or home-related or, or just kind of personal, I will be a stronger person in 2011. That's how I'm going to make 2010 different from 2011 is, is I'm going to be emotionally tougher. I am, I'm not going to let life just knock me over. I am going to be a stronger person was a very common thread. The other one was, or one of the other ones was, I'm going to be resilient in 2011, which really means I'm going to bounce back. So when life pushes me down, when, um, you know, things happen at work, when people say things about me, when, they, when these things happen, I'm going to be more resilient. I'm going to rebound better. I'm not going to let it just take the wind out of my sails. So in 2011, when bad things happen, I'm going to, I'm going to be resilient. I'm not, 
I'm not going to let it keep me, keep me down. And the one that was really prevalent and, and kind of was going through everyone's sort of train of thought was that I, in 2011, I'm not going to quit. And a lot of those, those were kind of aimed at New Year's resolution type, you know, when I set my mind to this, I'm not going to quit. But really it was, I'm not going to give up, I'm not going to quit. And so I started looking at these things that came off the page, and I thought, you know, when you, when you first look at these and you write them down, you know, 2011, I'm going to be stronger. 2011, I'm going to be resilient. I'm going to bounce back. 2011, I'm not going to quit. I am not going to give up. You start kind of going, man, this sort of emotion wells up in you, and you go, those are, are really great things. I mean, honestly, those are powerful truths, right? I mean, our society really pushes those truths. And, and if we really think about it, you'd want to look at someone and say, you know what, that's a great attitude. You know what, that's a great attitude to have, to have a better year in 2011. Be stronger. Bounce back. Don't quit. Don't let life get you down. And you could kind of see from a societal standpoint how we'd look at that and say, man, that's pretty fascinating. In fact, if you and I wanted to, we could probably, without a whole lot of work, write a book using those three things that I just mentioned, and literally it would probably fly off the shelves. We could book a conference room at a hotel down by the airport and sell tickets for like 59 bucks and go, hey, look, in 2011, we're going to teach you how to be stronger, how to be more resilient, and how to never quit, and it will change your life. I mean, we could probably sign up. I mean, most of us might even sign up. I mean, we we look as a society, we say, man, those are, are really powerful things. I mean, what if I could really grasp a hold of those things? Because it's playing on the emotion in all of us and, and the fact that in a lot of us have been raised this way to think that my greatest asset in life is myself. My ability to self-sustain, my ability to be self-motivated, my ability to empower myself to be my own agent of change. The only thing that's holding me back in life is me, right? I mean, we've kind of been taught that and sold that all of our growing up years. And so it's that part of us that says, I am my greatest asset. And as I was reading through these blogs and I was writing these things down, I was thinking, you know what a dangerous line this is spiritually. I mean, if we really think about it, this sort of self-sufficiency, self-motivation, self-reliance, I am my own great agent of change walks a really dangerous line spiritually. Because if we really read scripture, I mean, we really read it and we understand it, we recognize that this is not the kind of, these are not the kind of things that God calls us to. That God actually calls us to a life that would surrender ourselves, a life that would come and die, a life that would lay down all of our own desires for the sake of Jesus Christ, a life that says, not what I want, but instead, God, what you have for me. And in a society and a culture that promotes us, the individual, as its own agent of change, self-reliance, self-motivation, self-sufficiency, you can make a difference. And it comes face to face with this sort of spiritual truth. And they don't sit well together. And as I was reading through these things, and I was thinking about the things that I even want to change in my own life in 2011, I thought, how dangerous, Treb, to place all of these things on my shoulders, to say, Treb, if you want 2011 to be different, you've got to take charge. You've got to own this. You've got to do that. You've got to be better here. In fact, most of our resolutions, if we make resolutions, I mean, I think only like 35% of Americans really make them anyway, and, and 7% keep them, so I read. But if you make resolutions, I mean, most of them are based on your ability, right? I mean, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I'm going to quit this. I'm going to start that. 
We run some dangerous lines with our spiritual life when we begin to think about those things. You know, there's a, uh, a verse, or several verses in the book of Lamentations, which is a book in the Old Testament, that I think speak directly to this tension, this problem, this struggle that I think face most of us. And most of us are looking at 2011 on some level and say, I want some things to be different. And if they're going to be different, it's going to be because I'm going to have to reorient my life to make them different. But the book of Lamentations, really, our author really addresses this in a really powerful way. And what I think we need in 2011 is, not, is, is a life that is less me-focused, me-reliant, sort of me-driven, and exponentially more spir- or spiritually focused on saying, God, I want what you want and what you desire. I want to be God-centered and God-driven, less of me, more of you. As John the Baptist says in John 3.30, he says, Jesus, you must increase and I must decrease. That we need a reorientation in how we think as we approach 2011. We're going to glance this morning at the book of Lamentations, which means I may have to direct you to it. Nobody spends a whole lot of time in Lamentations. And because by definition, the book of Lamentations is an expressing of grief. A lamentation or to lament is to express grief. Grief. The entire book is a sad, sad reading. It's not the book you turn to and you're like, God's promises for life and you pat, you know, a little spiritual pick me up. I mean, it is, it's misery. But at the same time, it's some of the greatest raw emotion that we see in Scripture because it's all the things that you wish you could say that you never do because you're afraid God's going to strike you down with lightning. And so that's what happens in Lamentations. I mean, the author expresses the things that you go, I can't believe he's saying that. Well, it's very real, very powerful. We're going to be in the book of Lamentations, chapter 3 this morning. And Lamentations comes right after the book of Jeremiah, right before the book of Ezekiel, if that helps at all. I actually don't have the page number, so if you find it in that little one in front of you, 575. So if you've got the Bible in front of you, you'd be on page 575 or 698 if you're following with me. Before we get there, let's, uh, let's pray. God, we thank you for um, all you're doing in our lives. And God, we thank you that you are a God who never gives up on us and a God that desires us to know you so deeply. And Lord, we admit that there's tension in our life between the things that we want and the things that you want. We admit that there's tension in our lives that drive us to want to perform and that drive us to want to receive the glory. But Lord, we recognize that, that, that we serve a God and we serve a gospel that calls us to come and die. It calls us to come and lay down our own lives and look and think differently about the world and about our own hearts. So Lord, as we prepare to open your word this morning, I pray that you would teach us and that you would instruct us and that you would do something significant in our hearts that might reorient our thinking this morning to be exponentially more focused on you and less focused on ourselves. Take just a moment and just pray in your heart. Just ask God to to speak truth to you this morning. Just whisper that to to God and just say, God, speak some truth to my heart this morning. And as you're sitting there, just kind of pray um, silently for that person next to you. You may not even know their name. Just whisper that God would move in their life. Just Be in the habit of praying for the people around you. Just ask that God would move in them.
God, we ask that you would make your word come alive to us this morning. We know that an encounter with your word is an encounter with you. And that, God, your word is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. And as you say, it penetrates, even dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow, that it judges the thoughts and attitudes of our heart, that, God, your word is alive. And we pray that we would meet you this morning. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the book of Lamentations, chapter 3, and as I was kind of saying, the, uh, the book of Lamentations, by definition, is an expression of grief. It's an expression of frustration and trials, and it's, it's a very powerful book because it says some very real things, but it's also quite depressing because it expresses the things that a lot of us feel in our hearts but are, but are desperately afraid to say. But the author of Lamentations, who historically has kind of been contributed to Jeremiah, but scholarship kind of has some issues with that, so we'll just kind of deal with it as we have an author that we're not quite sure of, but this person is expressing these laments both individually, saying these are my personal cries, and they're also the cries of the community of the southern kingdom of Judah, because the southern kingdom of Judah is facing, they're about to basically be overthrown, and they're facing the the discipline of the Lord, and they're crying out, saying, God, have you forgotten us? What's happening? I mean, it's it's this sort of gut-wrenching kind of, God, where are you? Cry. But the author in chapter 3, hidden right in there, has some profound truth that I think speaks directly to what I was confronted with this week as I was thinking about how I think about my own life and how I think about what God is doing in me and change and and what 2011 might look like and sort of my me-centered self. Um, I kind of opened my eyes a little bit. So let's look at chapter 3 starting in verse 19 and we'll just read a few verses together and then we'll just kind of work through them a little bit. Chapter 319 says this, I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I remember them well, and my soul is downcast within me. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail, they are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, I say to myself, the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will wait for him. You know, you get the sense in that first verse that, that this author is, is recalling a portion of his life. He says, I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I remember them well, and my soul is downcast within me. It's almost as if you take that, that blogger that I first kind of talked about, the one that had looked at 2010 and said, man, that was the worst year ever. I mean, life just sort of dogpiled me. And, and you look at that person and you look at the author of these chapters and you say, maybe they're starting at the same place. I mean, I look back on my life and... And, and I remember those things, my afflictions, which are, are really this sort of misery and grief and frustration, the gall, which is the exasperation, the irritation. I remember these things so well, and my soul is downcast within me. I mean, you get the sense that both are looking back on a period of their lives and saying, that was a complete mess. And my soul is deeply, deeply downcast. Now, I don't know how you approach 2010. I mean, maybe this captures some of the things that you're feeling. Maybe 2010 for you was a series of unfortunate circumstances that just sort of took the wind right out of your life. I mean, it was a financial struggle here and there. It was a health struggle here. It was this and that and, you know, a loss of a job or the loss of a loved one. It just seems like... You look back on it and you say, how could one more thing possibly go wrong? 
You know, I remember my affliction well. I remember the, the, with, you know, those things that exponentially sort of pounding on my heart. You know, maybe that's how you look at 2010, this past year. Or maybe you're not quite there, but if, if you look at it, maybe it's not because everything was really bad, but maybe there was a few things in your life in 2010 that you just couldn't get past. That that same thing kept reoccurring over and over again, and you never sort of got victory over it. Or you allowed those same things to creep up in your life and, and push you down again. Every time you thought things were going well, that sort of financial issue would come up and kind of strangle you again. And you let it affect you. Or maybe it was a, a physical thing. Maybe it's the way you think about yourself physically or, or your own health. And that would come up and sort of steal your joy. You know, you may not look at the year and say, my soul is downcast within me, but there's probably periods that we look at and we say, man, I would love a do-over. I would love to just wash that out. You know, I mean, I certainly have those things in my life as I think about having a new year. Most of us anticipate the new year because it says, man, we can have new opportunities to start over. So that's how we, we approach it. But our author says, he goes, look, my soul is downcast within me. Now, now most of us at this place, I mean, this is where we find ourselves resonating with those things that sort of jumped off the pages of how to change in 2011. So 2010, as I look back on it, was awful. My soul is downcast, but I'm telling you what, things are going to be different. I'm going to be stronger. I'm going to be more resilient. I'm not going to give up. I'm literally going to take control of 2011. I'm going to wrestle it to the ground, and I'm going to own it. I'm going to take and I'm going to empower myself, and I'm going to take the situation, and I'm going to make it better. I mean, and from a societal standpoint, we can applaud that. Our culture actually kind of would stand around and say, that is how you make life better. That is how you make your life better here on earth. You take your situation, and you take control of it, and you make it work for you. When life gives you lemons, you make lemonade. You do what you can do to take control. But listen to how our author changes the tide of that way of thinking. So here he is looking at the same thing, his awful kind of past, my, my afflictions and my soul is downcast and, and I don't know what to do. Listen to how he approaches it and see how that's different than how you and I might. He says, I remember them well and my soul is downcast within me. Verse 21, yet I call this to mind. And therefore, I have hope. He says, yet in the middle of all that, in the middle of my downcast soul, I remember this. I call this to mind and I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. So you want to know the first thing that I call, that I remember, that I call on to in these moments to, to give myself hope is that because of God's great love, we are not consumed. In other words, the very fact that I am drawing breath is because of God's great love. Because if it weren't for him, I would be absolutely nothing. The fact that we weren't consumed, eaten up, kind of washed over is because God's love is unbelievably amazing. Now for most of us, that's not how we really approach God's love. We really think about God's love in terms of, you know, God's love is this sort of 
fluffy kind of, in my moments of sadness, he comes in and, and, he, and he puts his arm around me and he hugs me and God's love is sweet and wonderful. But what, what our author is saying is that God's love is so sustaining that it gives me life. It's more than a feel-good emotion. God's love is the very kind of result of my existence that without it, I would be absolutely nothing. I would be consumed, gone. I cannot sustain myself. As a community, he's saying, we could not survive this long without God's love. Now, most of us like to attribute our success in life to the things that we've done. But from a spiritual standpoint, the reality is the place that we are is only because God is that good. That everything that we have is because of him. No matter how large or how small. I mean, I really love this perspective. I remember years ago, I was in the Dominican Republic, and I had a team down there, and and we were working in a small Haitian village. Now, from a geography standpoint, Haiti and Dominican Republic, they share an island. And and Haiti is impoverished. And we know about Haiti because of the, uh, you know, all the kind of tragedy that they've had over the past year. But but Haiti is an island, half an island is completely poor. I mean, it is just unbelievably riddled with poverty. And from a socioeconomic standpoint, the Dominican Republic is incredibly wealthy, although we would consider it a third world country and very poor. To the Haitians, it's incredibly wealthy. And the Haitians try and flood over the mountains into the Dominican Republic so that they can have a better life. But the Dominicans don't want anything to do with the Haitians. And so the Haitians, when they cross the border, they end up in these small refugee camps. And they can't find work. And it literally is some of the most, some of the most poor people that I've ever seen, the poorest places I've ever been, and all of my travels around the world, some of the most poor places I've been have been in these little Haitian refugee camps in the Dominican Republic, where literally no one had clothes, and no one had food. There was no opportunity to get resources. And I remember being there with this team, and we were doing some work with these kids, and I was watching this woman bathe her, her child, and, and, the, and the whole community, only a handful of people had clothing. So I was watching her bathe this child in this community well. And they had one community well, and it just kind of bubbled up from the ground. And she was, she was bathing this child. And, and I, I was standing there, and I, I just kind of began to ask her. I said, do, do you need anything? Is there anything that we can give you? She had a bunch of small children. And I said, is there anything that we can give you? And she said, no, I really don't need anything. And I said, really nothing. I mean, we, we have some, some blankets and clothing and things that we brought with us. Is there anything that we can give you? She goes, no, really, I, I don't need anything. The very fact that my kids and I are eating is blessing enough from the Lord. And I began to have this conversation with her. And what I began to realize, what she was saying was that in her life, she had watched people, close friends and family that have, that have literally lost their lives. But the very fact that they were drawing breath and they were eating and she could feed her family was evidence that God loved them and was blessing them. And I've never really forgotten that situation because I often look at my life as in terms of what I don't have or what I'd rather, kind of what I long for, what I'd rather have. And I never look at my life or very seldom I look at my life and say the very fact that I have not just things physically but that I am drawing breath is a result of God's great love, the fact that we aren't consumed and washed over by this place is evidence that God loves us. And so you have this author looking at his life saying, look, things are terrible. My afflictions, my pain, my frustration, the irritation, the exasperation, I'm at the end of my rope. My soul, my very soul is downcast within me. I mean, you want to talk about not just having the emotion that says, I'm sad today. 
But when you look at someone, you say, my soul is downcast. He says, yet I remember this. Because of God's great love, we are not consumed. In other words, we should be dead. We should be gone. We should have nothing. But because of God's great love. See, as we think about change, it's not about saying, God, I'm going to be stronger this year and I'm going to accomplish more for myself. I'm going to take more things captive and I'm going to own them and I'm going to make a better life for me. The difference that we're seeing here is someone that says, no, God, the very fact that I have anything is because of you. And if I look at my life and everything that I have and I am, if I look at it as being because of you, it changes everything. I mean, the first way that you and I can make a change in the way that we think to reorient our life is to recognize that everything that we are and everything that we have is from and belongs to the Lord. Everything. Whether it's my physical things or whether it's my life. The breath that I draw, the house that I live in, this is from the Lord and it belongs to Him. When I can make that reorientation in my mind, when I can think differently about that, it changes a perspective. No longer does this world belong to me. No longer does my success and my challenge and my change belong to me. But now, God, I belong to you. Because the very fact that I am is because you are. I mean, I look back at my life and I shudder to think about where I'd be without Jesus. And I don't know where you were headed or what you were doing or what your life looked like. But I look at mine and I say, what a miserable existence. So listen to how our our author goes on. He goes on in in verse 22 and says, Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. This is one of the great underlying truths in all of Scripture. That God's compassions, his mercies and his grace never fail. That every day they're brand new. It doesn't mean that at 12.01 God says, all right, everybody gets a do-over. It's just kind of a, a metaphor reminding us that as the sun comes up, as a new day begins, God's mercy is brand new and fresh. It never fails. Your life, people in your life, things in your life will fail you. That is just something we all know. It's kind of an understatement. Your friends, they'll leave. They won't call when you really want them to. You know, your, your work will, will decide they're going to lay you off right when you need your job the most. You know, your, your husband or your wife, they, they don't change that one little thing that you really need them to change. And, and, and it sort of really is a big letdown after all these years. I mean, life is just, it just does that. Things will fail you. I mean, no matter how many times you finally get your handle on, on something, the air conditioner will go out, or how you finally get your checking account where you want it, and, you know, something breaks. I mean, life just is like that. And people, they're flawed, and they will abandon you. And just when you put all of your trust and hope into some person, something's revealed about their character that brings you back to quick reality. But what our author's saying is he's saying this, look, God's compassions never fail. In other words, no matter how much I mess up, no matter how bad I screw up, no matter what I do wrong, God's compassion is brand new. Brand new. Not only that, the Bible teaches us that not only is God's compassion new, but that his promise is that when we give our lives to him and we're born again, we have new life. It's not just an infinite number of do-overs. 
which is how a lot of us think about God's grace. I just kind of get to do and do and do and do over again with the same old mess that I am. The reality of God's grace is that God says, I don't just give you an infinite amount of do-overs, but as we learn in 2 Corinthians, he says, I make a whole new you, that I let my spirit dwell inside of you as a believer, and you are a new creation, which means you're not operating with that same old garbage that you did before, but you are brand new, and my compassions for you are new every single day. Now, a lot of us look at 2011 and we, January 1st, and we anticipate change because it gives us an excuse to say, I get to start again. And you know, I don't really know why that is. There's some tradition tied up in that, but really with the end of something, you have to begin something, and so we get the chance. But, but following Christ, it literally means that every moment I wake up with this new reality that God looks at me and he says, I love you so much that all that you've done is gone. Today, you are a new creation. You are a new creation. See, it's not put on my responsibility to bounce back and figure out how to pull myself up by my bootstraps. And when life pushes me down and people fail me and he walks out and she does this and my job forgets to pay me or whatever, I mean, it's not up to me just to pull myself up and gather myself and say, I'm going to trudge through life and I'm going to bounce back. The difference is saying, God, I believe that as I woke up this morning, you gave me brand new life in my lungs. That I couldn't get back up because life continues to pile on me. But with you, every day is brand new. And maybe you're sitting here this morning and the one thing that you desperately need is to do this again. You just need to hear somebody say and read in scripture where God says, look, my mercies for you are brand new this morning. That when you walked in this place, the other stuff is gone. You are a new creation in me. And today is the day you begin again. But notice who the responsibility falls on. It falls on the Lord doesn't fall on you to get everything put back together and you say, God, look, I'm presentable, so I'm showing up at church again. The responsibility falls on Jesus and says, because you love me so much and gave your life for me. It's all God's doing. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's not about being stronger and more resilient. It's about saying, God, you are. The very fact that you are makes me I am. It makes me who I am because of your great love and that your compassion never fails. Never fails. I will never wake up and go, God, where are you? That even in the midst of, of, a, of a person who's crying out saying, my soul is downcast, he's able to say, but your compassion never fails. Great is your faithfulness. Verse 24. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. You know what that's simply saying? The Lord is my portion is actually a, it's kind of a, a deep theological thing that's applied to the Levites because they didn't get a portion of the, of the promised land. They got the Lord as their portion as they were working in the temple. But basically what that's saying is it's saying, God, you are my life. You are all I need. You are my sustainer and the one that preserves me. God, you are my portion. You are everything that I need. You are my all. Everything that I am is wrapped up in you. See, a lot of times we approach our life and we think that if we're going to make it through, it's going to be because we're going to have to figure out how to not give up. We're going to have to put all of our ownership and power in our own ability. We're going to have to say, God, 
I'm going to do this, and I'm going to will myself to do it. But you know what the author's saying here? He's really saying that, God, my life is not mine. You are my portion, my sustainer, my life, my all, my everything. See, as a culture, even as a Christian subculture, we are, are pressed and taught to put so much power and responsibility on ourselves. I mean, if you go into the Christian bookstore, you go to Mardell today, there is a self-help section for the Christian. You know what kind of bad theology is buried in those books? We are taught to put the power on ourselves. But even in the midst of, of difficulty and chaos, the call is to look at God and say, God, you are my life and my sustainer. You are everything. You are the reason that I draw breath. You are the reason that I find joy at all. You are the reason that I even am. God, you are my life and my everything. See, I think that as I look at my own life in 2011 and what I desire for myself, it really is about a different way of thinking. I've got to reorient my thought process to be less me-driven, Treb-driven, Treb-self-sustained, Treb-do-this, Treb-do-that, and more saying, God, you are my all, my life, my everything. You are my source of strength. You are where I draw my joy. You are everything that I have. You are my life. Without you, I don't want anything or would be anything. And as a community, as individuals, if we could reorient our way of thinking and instead of coming up with a list of all the things that I will do differently this year in 2011 that will have an attempt to make my life better on the inside and on the outside, because usually what those things do is they promote my kind of self-power and they promote my self-glory. Because at the end of the day, they show how strong I was to accomplish it and they show the world what I was able to do. But if we reorient our way to thinking to say, God, I want to be about you so that you receive the glory for everything that happens in my life. So that when people see me, they say, man, God is good. When people say, what do you need? You say, I I don't need anything. The only reason I am is because God is. Now recognize that for a lot of us, you're going, okay, that's just, that's great. But I mean, really, Trev? I mean, seriously? Most of our struggle in our Christian lives begins with our mindset. It begins with the fact that we've been fed in our churches and in our life and in our culture lies about who we are. We've got to reorient our thinking. We've got to recognize that Scripture teaches something that's totally different and radically in opposition to what most of us come face to face with on a daily basis, including our own Christian culture. I want to be a part of a community, and I want to live in a community that says, God, we want what you want first. We are because you are. The very fact that we draw breath and gather is because you've given us reason. And that, God, what we believe in 2011 is that you are the giver and sustainer of life, and that we will move when you move, and we will go when you say go, and that we want you to receive all glory and all praise for everything that we do. What if that could be my challenge for 2011? What if my 2011 was less about being stronger, more resilient, not giving up, less about losing weight, less about looking this way, less about doing this, quitting this, and more about saying, God, change my thinking. Break that part of me that is grabbing so tightly to myself and turn my hands loose 
And let me live as the new creation that you have promised me that I am. That's how much God deeply, deeply loves us. And as we prepare this morning to celebrate God's great love as we share communion together, let's prepare our hearts for the God that has rescued us and given us life. The God that says, I breathe life into your very lungs. The God that gives us reason to live and reason to love. Let's take a look at this video as we prepare our hearts to meet with the Lord. Thank you.